I'm what's called a practical theologian, which I've already said this joke twice, but it's worthy of repeating. It's an oxymoron, meaning it, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to people. Oxymoron, remember, is like two words or concepts that don't fit together. Jumbo shrimp, okay, uh, uh, Oakland Raiders commitment to excellence. These would be, <laughs> good, that's the best laugh so far today, although whatever. Um, I, I've also, uh, I've, been, I've been in this idea of teaching seminary students for 26 years and teaching not only uh, about youth ministry but about family, marriage, uh, growing older, lifespan development, uh, culture. My actual title in practical theology is youth, family, and culture. So we work on things like media and the movie industry and those kind of deals. I get to hang out with really wonderful people that try to ask a hard question of what does it mean to be the church in a changing culture? And so I live in Gig Harbor, Washington, but I work in Pasadena as a professor, California, and I'm an interim in Newport Beach, California. So it's a really a very, so Alaska Airlines and I are becoming very, very good friends up and down the coast. Uh, it's really been a great time being here and hearing about the student union, TSU. I, I'm very excited about what's happening with that and the things that you're doing. But still, every time I come to church, I, I'm reminded of the little boy that was, you know, was sleeping in on a Sunday morning. His mom came to wake him up and she shook him a little bit today. Hey, time to get up for church. And he laid there pretending to be asleep. Come on, honey, it's time to get up to church. Here we go. And he finally stirs a little bit. He says, I don't want to go to church. And she says, come on, we have this conversation a lot. Time to get up and go to church. I don't want to go to church for two reasons. They don't like me and I don't like them. And he rolls back over. Finally, the mom had had it. You know, she's mad. And she says to him, you're gonna go to church, get up, for two reasons. One, you're 36 years old. <laughs> two, you're the senior pastor. Now get out of bed and go, oh, I'm sorry. I, I did not mean to even potentially imply that that possibly could happen, but I have to tell you, I've spent a little time with Brian already, and let me, let me just say, I get a lot of chances at a lot of churches all over the place, and I've I've had a lot of students at the master and doctoral level, and you guys have a good one, don't you think? That is not quite as raucous as I would hope six months in. Uh, I also wanna say something that I don't know if you'll get to hear from people from outside. All you really know so far is I'm attractive. That's all you, you know, <laughs> actually have to go on. Is, uh, is this is a great couple that has, has given their lives to you and who loves Christ and have been called by the Lord to help walk in step with you folks as a community. So I charge you before the Lord as a person that trains pastors, take care of them. Watch out for them. Watch out for their kids because it's a very difficult job, especially in a changing culture that is, is so fragmented and so many different voices out there that they deserve your very best and kindness and protection. So in the name of Christ, I charge you, men and women of this community, to make sure that this family is healthy and whole as they serve you well. And that includes all the staff, Ben and his family, and everybody else that I've gotten to know. Great folks you have here. So actually, who needs to preach after that? Let's close in prayer. It's been a great time. Let's go get pizza. Um, <clears throat> the weekend has actually been about Basically, uh, understanding children and teenagers. Uh, technically, 
the whatever we call adolescence from from childhood up until around 10 or 11, and then adolescence roughly around 11 to, for women, mid to late 20s, for men, mid to late 50s, that sucker goes on and on. We call that adolescence and emerging adulthood. And what does it mean for the rest of us to understand them and then frankly to care about them, especially as Christians? So this is a very warm church, a very inviting church, a lot of great people that I've gotten to meet. And so as we gather around the scriptures, which becomes our fireplace, our family reunion together as the body of Christ, we approach the scriptures together to see what God would have for us today. So if you have a Bible and want to turn to it, I encourage you to go to Luke chapter seven. If you don't have a Bible and you need one, you probably have it in your phone somewhere and don't even know it. Uh, or you can check into almost any hotel and steal one. That's appropriate as well. So if you want to follow along, that's fine. If you want to do what Christians have done for centuries, you can just listen to my gravelly voice to be able to, uh, and I made a joke about that this morning, and somebody handed me about 15 lifesavers. So way to go, thanks. It doesn't actually fix anything, but it's a kind gesture. I love that. This is Luke 7. It's kind of a long passage, <clears throat> but bear with me as we read it together. I'm going to read it out loud. For us, when one of the Pharisees, verse 36, invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's home and uh, reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus said to him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, well, I, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You, you did not put oil on my head, but she poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who, 
Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your trust has saved you. Go in peace. May God grant us the courage to receive his word in our souls this morning. What a great passage of scripture. This is kind of a wild passage of scripture because a lot of commentators, and this is the world that I swim in, Fuller Seminary is a uh, very large seminary. It's the largest accredited school in the world. Every classroom that I teach, I have at least three continents in every single class. There are people from all over the world that come as a part of Fuller. Uh, it's, a, it's an honor to get to be there. I've been there a long time. I used to be an administrator, vice provost, but I've been kind of chairing the Christian discipleship department for a while and trying to help us to figure out what does it mean to be a disciple the world changes so dramatically. And in the course of doing that, we actually have the writers of many of the commentaries right there on our faculty. And so we get to have lunch conversations and coffee to talk about things like this. And this has been one of those passages that I've just had a ball talking to one of my New Testament colleagues about because many commentaries actually um, reduce this to being one of the four anointing stories in the Bible. Every single one of the Gospels has an event where a woman comes, breaks an alabaster jar of perfume, and, and anoints Jesus. And so many times, the commentators that write on these kind of things and pastors that preach on them will say that this is the Luke account of the anointing. The problem is, in Matthew, Mark, and John, all three of those anointing events are preparing Jesus for burial. So they have a unique historical setting for those three events. And therefore, this is set apart from those other three. This is right in the midst of Jesus' ministry, way before he's headed to the cross. So it's a different timing on his journey in ministry and life. So that's one thing that sets us apart from the other three. But also, there's another, a lot of commentaries say, well, it has to be one of those anointing stories because there's another one that talks about Simon the leper where Jesus is anointed. As if, because this is Simon the Pharisee and that's Simon the leper, it's gotta be the exact same story because Simon is such an uncommon name. How many of you are named Simon? Anybody? Okay, unless you work, you know, used to work for American Idol. All right, way to go. But how many of you are named John? Raise your hand really high. Okay, raise your hand really high. One, two, that's it? Anybody up there in cheap seats? We only got two Johns here? All right, forget it. Uh, uh, let's try Peter. Any Pete's? One guy that can barely raise his hand. Thank you, Pete. Appreciate you doing that. Good for you. Uh, 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 Mark? Oh my, what are your names? This is a crazy one, Mark. Uh, two Marks. They're in the same row. That's good. That's the Mark row. My illustration's completely falling apart here. This is crazy. Oh, uh, yeah, let me see. Christian Missionary Alliance. I forgot. How many Joshua's? One, two, uh, a few of those. Uh, Jezekiah's? <laughs> Holy mackerels? I mean, what really are... It? But you get the point. Simon was a common name then. Jesus had a brother named Simon. There were two disciples named Simon. There's Simon, the guy that picks up the cross when Jesus let it drop. And then, you know, the famous family, the other two brothers were Alvin and Theodore. 
and Simon. That's biblical. So there's a lot. If you don't know what that joke, then you really are not very culturally relevant. Let's just be honest. And don't work at the student union. I looked it up, made sure I got it right this time. Uh, so it's a common name. This is a unique event. And Luke is a unique gospel in that Luke evidently wrote a little bit later than Mark and Matthew and decided that, that he added a little bit more nuance and did a little deeper study, at least he says that. And so therefore in Luke, sometimes there's things that pop out that aren't mentioned in Matthew and Mark. Those first three gospels, we call them the synoptics. I'm sure you'll deal with that at some point. And uh, John is written in a whole different genre. Most people think it's a little bit later. But so Luke is really interesting. In fact, you don't read anything about Samaritans in Matthew and Mark. That doesn't come into play until Luke and the Gospel of John. So here, Luke is giving us a unique story in the life of Jesus. Not a fairy tale, but an event. And that's where we pick it up. Simon's a Pharisee, he's a big shot. He's not only powerful in terms of the religious faith, Pharisees actually controlled most of the people. They were wealthy, they were, they were important, they uh, clearly were at the center of the dominant community of the Jews at that time in history. So Simon was an influential man that had a dinner party for his friends and he invited Jesus. Usually when one of the Pharisees or scribes would invite Jesus to come to an event, they would have a dinner party with their friends and this was typical. But he didn't greet him as you would an honored guest with a kiss, with oil, greeting him with the honor of someone that took their time to have the dinner party. No, Simon included him as one of the guests. And as they reclined at table, they were just having this little dinner party and let Jesus be part of their entourage until all heck broke loose. A woman barged in that wasn't allowed to be there, clearly, even some say legally, because she was such an awful woman, a, lived a sinful life. We, we aren't told directly what the sinful life is, but it's clearly a thought to be a sinful life that has to do with sexual sin. And she was clearly a famous woman in that town as well. So this woman who at least Simon knew, but certainly everybody else knew as well from the context, that this woman had no right to be at that party. She barges in because Jesus was there and she falls at his feet, weeping, perhaps wailing as she lets her tears fall on his feet, wipes her tears with her hair. And that means her hair was down, which was forbidden in that culture at that time. It was a mark of a woman of ill repute who had a lifestyle likely of being a prostitute. As her hair would come down, she let her long hair flow, wiping his feet with her hair, then breaking the jar and pouring it on his feet and anointing his feet. And the smell from an alabaster jar is like a seventh grade dance where boys prepare. Some of you remember Brute, <laughs> where you, you just thought it wasn't a little dabble, do you? That was Brill Cream. That's for the old guys. It was just like you just pour all this. Wow, have you ever driven a kid in a minivan to their first seventh grade dance? Oh my gosh, that's a little almost exactly what that was like. So the smells, the sound, the hair, the woman, her clothing, the whole thing was completely wrong. It was bad, it was awful. Why would she do this? She's ruining her dinner party. And here's Jesus reclining a table. That's how they used to do it at that time in history. 
And so Simon thinks in his mind, if he really were the prophet that he claims to be, that everybody's saying he is, he would know who that woman is. He would realize how awful she is. He would be aware that she was somebody that doesn't belong at this place, doesn't belong at the table. He would know as she touches him that he, she is defiling this one who claims to be a prophet. Why would he let her do that to him? And then he tells this very brief little parable. Simon, I got something to tell you. Even though Simon thought it, our Lord knew his thoughts. So he says, I have something to tell you. Is that okay? Sure, tell me. Uh, a money lender lent money out. And two people owed the money lender money. 500 pieces of silver, 500 pieces that represent 500 days wages. Uh, let's say $50,000 for labor. And, uh, and 50 pieces, say um, $50,000. One owed 50,000, one owed 500,000. Or let's bring it down. One owed 50,000 and one owed 5,000. All right? So two different amounts, clearly different. And Jesus said, the debtor, I mean the lender said, both of you owe me, but neither one of you can pay me, so I'll tell you what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna show compassion and I'm gonna cancel both your debts. 150, 15. Jesus asked this really pointed question. Okay, Simon, I got it. Just a simple question. Which one of those two people that had their debt forgiven would love the money lender more? And Simon answers correctly according to his value system. He says, well, suppose the one, you know, that had the greater debt. You know, 50 grand, that's a lot of money. So yeah, love him more. Five grand, not a big deal, no problem. But 50, that's something. And so he'd love him more. And Jesus gives this really odd, on the surface response. You've judged correctly. But we know from the text that he didn't mean to affirm Simon's response. What he meant to say is, I understand how you said that according to your value system. Because to you, 50,000 is a lot and 5,000 is nothing. To you, the large amount is painful, the smaller amount is handleable. Anytime you see Jesus approaching finances in his parables, you need to remember that financial conversations are always relative based on the listener's financial situation. Depending on who the person who's hearing the parable, they would judge that parable according to their own position. So to Simon, the larger amount was a huge gift. The smaller amount didn't mean that much. But what we also have to remember is there are other people in different positions that would hear that and say, both of those numbers are so huge, it doesn't matter. 50,000 or five, I can't pay either one of them back. I would love them the same regardless. Well, that gets to the point of what Jesus took place here is right after he said, you've judged correctly, notice verse, verse 44. Jesus had been looking at Simon, had been talking with Simon while the woman weeps and wipes and cries and wails. And he's having this conversation with Simon. And then verse 44 says, he turned toward the woman. 
Jesus looked at the woman and he said to Simon, you know, a lot of times we read the scriptures. I've said this before the middle hour if you were here. When we look at the scriptures, often we read it too fast. We, we miss some of the most powerful statements in scripture simply because we think the more we read, the more spiritual we are. The greater volume actually transforms us in a deeper, more profound way, but the reality is usually in reverse. The more careful we note what scripture actually teaches instead of what we bring from our own lens into the scripture may be the most powerful. Jesus looked at the woman and he said to Simon, focused on the woman, and said to Simon, Simon, Do you see her? Do you see her, Simon? See her right here. I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered does not stop kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. You didn't honor me. You don't know who I am. You have not taken a minute to glimpse in the direction of the kingdom of God as I have brought it into this place. You don't really understand who I am and my mission. You haven't listened carefully to my words. You do not even know the law that you profess. And you don't even see this woman. She honors me in a way that you don't even begin to. I get to be at your table with you, Simon, but she has recognized that the God she so deeply and desperately longs for has come, and she could not help but barge into this dinner party and anoint me and kiss me and honor me. Do you see her, Simon? Therefore, I tell you, her many sins. Simon? Her many sins are forgiven. And here's a wild statement. As her great love has shown, but whoever has been forgiven little, Simon, forgives little. Then he forgave her sins. The crowd muttered among themselves, how can he possibly do this? And he tells her this great phrase, Your trust in me has saved you. That's what the word actually means. Go in the fullness of peace that I've come to bring. You may go now, set free. Here's the interesting thing about this passage. Is Simon missed the point of the parable. The point of the parable is that one would love him more than the other based on the amount of the debt. The point of the parable is they were both debtors. Simon, two people owed a debt. Neither could pay. The moneylender said, I'm going to forgive both of you. The correct answer is both of them would love him because both of them needed his mercy and his kindness. Simon, why do you sit at the table with me as if you belonged here? 
Why are you not at my feet alongside this woman that you so disdain? You've cut off. You've ridden off. But you continue to recline at the table with me because you believe not only you deserve to be there, but you think you're the host. Simon, you are every bit the debtor that she is. Simon, you're both co-debtors. You're in the same boat. You're in the same dire straits. You are in the same circumstances. You both are lost, needing to be found. You both are broken and brokenhearted, needed to be restored. You both are orphans, needing a family. And yet you sit here reclining at the table. And a lot of people cry when you actually get that pointed in the scripture. So that baby's not alone. Awesome. I'm a new granddaddy. I love babies. Let her go for it, okay? What's so profound about this for me? I don't know about you, but if you're like me, and I know I am. That works, okay. I'm Simon. I'm Simon. I identify far more, if I'm honest, with Simon than I do with the woman. I met Christ when I was 16 years old because a junior high school teacher in my town decided to leave the safety and comfort of his junior high classroom, the power and status of his adulthood, and enter the world of a bunch of teenagers by being a volunteer young life leader in Stamford, Connecticut. And because he would come and spend time with a bunch of us and love us in the name of Jesus and communicate that in a winsome kind way by building a bridge of trust with us, several of us heard and responded to Jesus because of this guy named Dan Borgman. So I met Christ, we moved a few weeks later, actually after I met Christ in the winter of that year, my sophomore year, to California, and I got involved in a good church, I stayed involved in Young Life, I've been involved in both ever since, the parish and the parachurch. One hand being disciple and grounded, the other hand being out there in the streets caring for young people. And what's interesting about my own journey is, the longer I've been a Christian, the more I've been aware that I have learned that I need to continue to work hard, continue to build my life, continue to be faithful, to love Christ with everything I got, and to keep my head down because I have learned that God really wants me to be faithful and to work that out every day of my life, and what often that means for me is I put my head down and I go. I go as a husband, I go as a father, I go as a church person, I go as a, my job, but I often put my head down, but it's so easy for me to slip into having dinner parties and inviting Jesus to my table. It's so easy for me to actually think that I deserve a place at the table. And when I do, it's easy for me to forget not only where I come from, but still what dwells inside of me as the Holy Spirit tries to change me from the inside out. We sang it. I am much more Simon than I am that woman, if I'm honest. As Shane Claiborne puts it, a great writer, he's shaken up the evangelical church because he's got so much beauty and innocence in his soul. He says, I was born on third base and I think I hit a triple. And that's me because I was born into a good family of parents that basically loved each other, that relatively honored the gospel sort of by going to church most of my life, but actually um, 
teaching me that what God really wants from me is to put my head down and be faithful, to work hard, to do the right things, and just to make sure that I stayed on that path because that's the point of what God has for us. And yet, to actually look at all those that can't, don't even have a bat to be able to step up to the plate or can barely get a bunt single to get on first. And it's so easy for me to stand on third base and say, Lord, don't you know who it is that's weeping? Don't you know who that is that longs for your touch? Don't you realize, for whatever reason, that they're not being faithful, that they're not responsible, that they're not living up what do I think about life? It's so easy for me to sit complacent, even as a follower of Christ, as a relatively mature follower of Christ, even though I am childlike, to look at others and allow myself to go, Lord, what about them? And the Lord looks me square in the eye and says, what about you? I am Simon. That's exactly what we've been talking about this weekend. That has implications all over the place, obviously. But this weekend, what we've been talking about is there's disconnect even in God's churches all over the U.S. In our particular culture, there's a disconnect. And here's the disconnect. Between those who are dominant and at the center and those who are, for whatever reason, are relatively vulnerable. In our case, what we're talking about is adolescents, maybe not so much children. Children seem to be valued until they get a voice. Sometimes it's four, sometimes it's seven, sometimes it's not till middle school. But adolescents, teenagers, and then young adults are a population in our culture where most people say we love them, we're hiring a youth pastor, boom. Or we say, I'm glad I'm done with that, I, don't have to, I raised my kids, I don't have to do that anymore. Theologically, that couldn't be further from the truth, is that we all are commissioned and called to care for our kids, for one another, because they're vulnerable. In churches all across the U.S., the greatest issue is generational and class fragmentation and a separation among ourselves. We're rarely a congregation. We're a network of isolated worshipers where we grab onto each other that make us the most comfortable and reinforce us keeping our head down and going to the dinner party with Jesus. And I read a text like this and so many others that causes me to step back and go, Lord, is your point that I'm no different? Is your point that even as I'm comfortable, there are those that are on the outside, whether it's teenagers or young adults or in a congregation, single people feel that way? Elderly often feel that way. Folks who have just recently been divorced, folks dealing with addiction, you go through various iterations of the human story and the human condition. There are some of us that feel comfortable at the table because circumstances seem to be working for us. And there are many of us that even gather as the church and we feel disconnected and on the outside. And the point of this text is Jesus is saying, you are the same. Each one of us is desperate for the love, the touch, the attention, and the look of Jesus Christ. So what this text has for us is the same thing that we have for this weekend and the reason for the student union. Way to go, church. That a group of people have decided that the children of this community deserve Christians who care. I love how you actually talked about it in the video, Brian. 
Because really, at the end of the day, each one of us are invited to the table, but at the feet of Jesus alongside one another. Paul puts it this way, Galatians 6.2, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. My friends, when we open the scriptures, it's easy for us to skirt by those texts, those phrases that make us uncomfortable or cause us to be transported and transformed into a new creation, into a new place of awareness. But his message for his church is, we desperately need each other. In Christ, we're invited into his family as siblings, as brothers and sisters who are desperate for the love and touch of Jesus Christ. Jesus said to Simon, do you see her? And he says that to me. Do you see that 12-year-old girl? Do you see that 17-year-old boy? Do you see that 42-year-old single person who actually will go home alone and not have a meal with another person until maybe at lunch tomorrow with a colleague at work? Do you see that recently divorced person who has been ostracized because of mistakes they've made? Do you see that elderly person that really has nobody that even knows their name except peers? Do you see the brothers and sisters that God has given to you in the body of Christ? Oh, that the church of Jesus Christ, especially in our culture, would remember that we all are invited to gather at the feet of Jesus where we can weep and we can anoint and we can kiss because he has set us free. Let's pray. Lord, uh, your word is so wonderful and yet can be so hard because on the one hand it can move us but on the other hand it it causes us it calls us to move to think outside ourselves to readjust our opinions and our perspectives to slow our lives down to be more careful and to see may this congregation not only see the kids, the student union, but to see their families, to hear their stories. Not only those, but to see one another. That we would have eyes that see as you see and hearts that care as you care and the will to be able to step into that in partnership with you. Grant us the courage to follow you in your mission to bring healing and wholeness to people that you love.